Welcome to Late Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of trees. And I'm joined by Meredith. Hello. Hello. Uh, so famously, you and I tend to chat too much and not get to Patreon comments and questions and recommendations and things of those natures. So I thought maybe we would just dive right in today. I think that sounds perfect. Okay, great. Um, so I'm going to paraphrase both of these just because I kind of wanted to use them as both jumping off points to talk about stuff that we were going to talk about anyway. But Mark wrote in and said, every time a movie or show or whatever gets pushed, it makes me, uh, oh God, sorry. <laughs> the text is too big and I have to scroll. Oh um, no, it's okay. Okay. Let me see if I do, do, do. Oh God. You know, Gmail, you're a pain in the ass. All right, there we go. Uh, it makes me happy. I can wait forever, but it shows that the studios aren't going to get money until at least that push date. Side note, when do you think the studios will realize that the writers and actors can always get different jobs and live, but the producers can't? Like, worst case scenario, the strikes fail, but writers don't want to go back. They can write books or work retail or anything else, and the producers can't change their minds then. Oh, Mark, you sweet angel, thinking people can live on writing books. <laughs> As someone who has written a book, <laughs> let me just tell you, uh, you can't. Um, and also, as someone who knows a lot of writers, a lot of the writers who write for TV can't write books. And that's not a drag, but that's just like different writers do different things, you know? Um, yeah. And it is the people who can do both are special. like Fully. Yeah. And also, by the way, a lot of producers are also writers, um, she said, as a writer producer. But yeah, I, I think to go back to your point. Uh, obviously the studios can't do anything without writers or actors. So they have a lot of power. And also this is interesting. And this is what I wanted to use Mark's, which by the way, Mark, thank you for the comment. Um, his comment as a jumping off point to discuss is the last update we got is it seems like the producers are pretty fractured and the studios are pretty fractured because now we've seen these exceptions from like a 24 and neon, these independent studios who are like, Oh, we can meet all of SAG's requirements and mm -hmm. SAG's like, interesting. So why can't the major studios? And everyone's like, we don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, of course we know they just don't want to do it. Right. Uh, Cause it would cost right. them money, but it is very interesting. It seems like the, the producers right now are very, very fractured and they're trying to present as though they're not that they're a unified front, but it is blatantly obvious. They're not unified. Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but the fact that the studios that are members of the AMPTP are working for companies that ultimately have different goals, even if they've been getting reorganized and sold back and forth to each other, um, there are fundamentally different objectives for Amazon and Netflix versus uh, a studio that has uh, a full production arm that's been around for a century. Um, Right. So there's going to be, they can't, aside from screwing writers and actors, it's hard to see them getting their shit together to be able to, to come up with good ideas. And every decision that has been made by the studios since the strike started is almost mind bogglingly <laughs> stupid. Bad, bad, <laughs> bad, bad. And you don't need to know a lot about business to know that like Zasloff is 
destroying the brand that he inherited, you know? Um, I don't, I just wanted to like make the point that I don't think it will be an, uh, an easy transition for writers. Like the, the longer the strike goes on, it's bad. Like people will absolutely start getting kicked out of their apartments. And like, I, I don't want to be like light about that and be like, yeah, they can just go do something else. Cause the reality is for a lot of writers and actors, they can't do that, you know? Um, but at the same time, a lot of things, a lot of things that people have been saying is, uh, if you don't think we've been used to living like this for years, they're, like, you've here's got the thing. another thing coming. They're, they're tough, but there's a limit. Absolutely. But it is, I think, true that one of the reasons why the solidarity has stayed so strong is because people have been scrappy. So the scrappy and they're getting support from some of these, the funds, you know? um, Yeah. And I do believe, I think I saw the most recent poll said 72% of Americans support the strike. (laughs) Somehow I'm going to tie this into Joe Jonas and it's Joe Jonas, right? And Sophie who are getting, yeah. And and Ashton and and Danny and Mila, that whole thing. I feel like culture has just changed so much. I feel like even five or six years ago, if we were talking about this strike, it wouldn't be 70% however many Americans supporting the strike. It would be Absolutely. way closer to 50-50, if not outright favoring the studios. And same with these like various stories we're seeing in the news. You know, obviously misogyny still exists. We've seen recent examples of that as well but the fact that five six years ago this narrative of you know Sophie being a bad mother I think would have if you don't know the backstory of I won't even go into it Mm because I I didn't even think we were going to talk about that we don't have to but I think a lot more people would have bought into this narrative of she's a bad mom and that's why they're getting divorced yeah the the usual tricks from PR people from teams yes are not they're not sticking yes. like they used to. That's a great um, way. That's like the umbrella yeah. point I'm trying to make, which is <laughs> the PR machine can't PR as easily anymore. It's like, oh, we'll just go back to the old playbook of blame the workers for being greedy, uh, blame the the wife for being a bad wife. And people, at least, you know, we're both extremely online, although you are no longer on Twitter, which congratulations. Thank you. I feel so free. <laughs> I bet you do. Um you know, we're extremely online, so maybe, you know, we're not getting an accurate sample of how, like, quote-unquote, real Americans feel. But I do feel like the culture has substantially shifted, and the the studios are fucking scared. Especially because, as I said, A24 and Neon are saying, we can do it. And it's, like, so clear that if smaller studios can do it, there's no excuse for larger studios. Right. These things are not impossible to do and people want to be working and, you know, even and successful actors have shown time and time again that they are willing to give up some of their pie if it means that movies they're passionate about get made, which is like, and other people get paid for it. So there, we've seen plenty of models where, things are spread out more equally. It's just usually people doing it themselves rather than it being baked into how larger films are being made. And listen, realistically, like if this 
results in a fracturing of the studio system and more A-listers doing like indie films and stuff. I think that's all great. I'm just saying like realistically, people got to pay their bills, you know? Mm -hmm. So the sooner this can be over in a way that benefits the workers and the people who produce literally everything, the better. I'm very encouraged by the last update we've seen from negotiations. Um, But a thousand percent of the blame is still on the AMPTP for, you know, refusing to come to the table. How do you negotiate with someone who refuses to come to the table? (laughs) And for spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these crisis PR firms while they're doing that. And it's not working, you fucking idiots. You're spending even more money. The money that you are burning by dragging this all out could have easily funded what the workers are asking for. And it's also like while they're doing this, they're making deals that are going to further dilute their brands, consolidate uh, services and create setups that are doing the exact stuff that's like squeezing workers. I mean, I'm thinking specifically about the Disney Hulu deal. I was just going to say, you don't want to pay more for Disney and Hulu for no fucking reason. You don't want that. That's weird. Oh, and have them start taking things off like (laughs) just immediately because as soon as they've made the deal, they have to figure out how to adjust their balance sheets. So now it's remove content for tax write-off reasons. And time. like, yeah, what is this? And like, what new content is coming? Like, do you think people are that excited about Loki season two? And don't get me wrong. I'm very excited about Loki season two. Am I want to pay Disney and Hulu fucking however many more dollars a month excited? Absolutely not. Ab- yeah, 100%. I'm like, thank you so much for giving me absolute shit. <laughs> And not uh, who is it? My shit yeah. sandwich. It's time for my shit sandwich. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, uh, I'm really excited that somehow they will find a way. You know, will Disney Plus just become Plus? Yeah, it would I, be amazing if it did. I think let's just get rid of all of the storied brands. Yeah, let's just get let, no content. I want to turn on the app to a black screen. That's what I want to pay $14.99 a month for, or whatever the fuck. Yeah, I mean. If I was a shareholder in Warner Brothers right now, I would be looking at the head thinking, hmm, I don't know if you should have a job anymore. You know, in terms of diminishing the value of these brands. Yeah. And it's not like we're out here being huge. We're not huge supporters of brands as a concept. We don't have any loyalty to it. We just want people to make good shit. Uh, yeah. When I say brands, I'm really, also, yeah. yeah, it's like the quality you know. of the content. Yeah. So like, right. I think, you know, whatever you think of Warner Brothers back in the day when a film was released by Warner Brothers, you would be like, ooh, like, you know, good quality. Um, it'll be a real film, you know? Uh, right. And now it's sort of like... <sighs> Obviously, they're not producing anything right now because of the strikes, but in terms of what they're doing with their streamers, it's like, and how they're treating people, dude, like the hard work that goes into creating a show. And then you say, not only are we not airing it, we are going to pull it from the archives. You know, if it already exists and they, they didn't renew it for a season two, we're pulling it from the archives. And you treat people like that, it's like you're going to have a talent drain because who in their fucking right mind would want to work with you again? Of course. And you add in the response, just the fact that the response from the studios on things like streaming residuals and transparency, uh, they have zero interest in doing anything that would make somebody want to work with them or ever believe that they could be trustworthy in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, how do you trust after this? You know, even if they come to an agreement, 
which inevitably they will have to come to some kind of agreement, the way they have treated the workers, it's been not that we were under any impression, you know, false impression that they treated them great before, but they were very brutally honest in terms of like these negotiations where it's like, everybody knows where we stand now. It's like, you don't give a shit about your employees. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's an even more offensive version of the anonymous Oscar voter (laughs) series that happens before the like award show every time. Uh, It's like, Oh, you guys are just saying this stuff out loud. Someone who has never spoken to another human being before. It's like, Oh, you're just saying this out loud. Oh, God damn. You know what year it is, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so kind of in the similar vein, uh, and I, again, I wanted to use it as a jumping off point. Brian wrote in about the the discourse, capital D, surrounding uh, Yorgos's, Yorgos Lanthimos's, uh latest film, uh, Poor Things, which won the Gold Lion at Venice, which is the big award that every film is gunning for at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, rave, rave reviews. Like, I think it still has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, although we're going we're gonna to talk about Rotten Tomatoes in a second. But like, just as an example of how unified the praise has been for the film, um, you know, Emma Stone is getting a lot of uh, buzz that she might be up for an Oscar uh, or the front runner for an Oscar right now. But... I really wanted to talk about this weird narrative that sprung up around it, which is, you know, obviously only a small handful of critics have seen the film. So, like, I can't speak to the content of the film at all. But this really interesting thing happened where I wish I had the critic's name in front of me. Uh, Male critic who was saying, I'm just tired of seeing these kinds of films. I'm paraphrasing. But basically, the criticism was that Yorgos wrote the film. So it was sort of like he was stripping Emma of her agency. That this like mean male director made her do a film in which there's a lot of sex scenes. Sex is a big part of the story. It's a story, of course, based around Frankenstein's monster. But what if it was a woman? You know? So, like, I think the central credit criticism is that, like, she has a quote-unquote child's mind. And she's having, like, sex in this film. And it's baffling to me that, you know, like, again, going back to this criticism of, like, our culture really like going to the right and becoming very conservative, fascist, <laughs> anti-art. You know, there was that meme on, you might've deleted before this went viral, but somebody posted like a list of what is real art and what's not real art. So, and this, the central difference between like real art, quote unquote, and like bad art was bad art makes you feel uncomfortable. And it's like, I'm sorry. So you don't want to be challenged in anything you're watching is what you're saying. Like it it was like feels makes you feel weird or like destroys, you know, does it, I just didn't, I was like, what is going on here? But it did remind me of poor things because it's like interesting. So what you're watching is making you feel uncomfortable. So your first impulse, and it's like terrifying that a critic would feel this way is to like lash out at the creator and strip the lead actress of her agency because Emma is a seasoned actress. Yorgos was very clear that she was 
not only in command in front of the screen, but she was very influential behind the camera as well. They worked together. They they collaborated on this character. She's a very, very intelligent person, has full agency, can articulate herself if she's feeling uncomfortable, like all of the things, you well, know. Also, Yorgos has spoken about specifically the experience of working with the intimacy coordinator for right. the film and how... Yeah, we have make a lot of we make a big deal out of this being strange and threatening and dangerous to art, but having her there was fantastic and yeah. was uh, allowed us to work things out in a way that I think made the movie stronger. And I'm like, oh, cool. So they're talking about a film full of explicit scenes in which he describes working closely with Emma and with the intimacy coordinator to make sure that everything was as solid as it could be like that sounds like exactly what we want out of this and it shouldn't like the existence of sex in a film should not be a reason to suggest that the filmmaker is exploiting people who are participating like some stories require a lot of sex what if I'm watching a film with my child and there's a sex scene? What do I do? Oh, well, if you're watching poor things with your child and they're like <laughs> 10 or 11, I think you've Maybe got Maybe not a great issues. call, yeah, uh, <laughs> from the get-go. Yeah, but also, like, just shut the fuck up. Like, if you're watching, if you're uncomfortable because you can't watch a movie that has sex in it shut or implied sex, like, just up. shut up. And listen, I understand there are ace people who don't want to watch sex scenes cool. That doesn't mean they shouldn't exist. You know, like if you want to stop watching a film because there's a sex scene and that's not your bag, that's a hundred percent your call. You're right. But to take to Twitter and say that therefore there should not be sex scenes and they're unnecessary because they don't quote unquote advance the plot. First of all, you don't know what you're fucking talking about. I guarantee you, you're not a successful screenplay writer. I guarantee it. <laughs> you should not be giving notes on what good form is in a screenplay. Don't know why anybody's listening to you. Don't know why anybody's amplifying you. Like, I'm sorry. Like, if sex makes you uncomfortable, it is up to you to determine what you're watching. And it's not up to everybody else to censor their art to fit what you are looking for. Right. This idea that everything has to have a specific type of aesthetic and tell a particular type of story is just a Absolutely. It's like a total betrayal of what narrative art is supposed to be or non-narrative art, because, of course, there's plenty of stuff that's very experimental. Uh, like, what about films that basically don't have stories? Like, sorry, those can be good, too. <laughs> yeah. And, and in fact, oftentimes exciting because they're breaking a form and creating something new, you know, and like, obviously, also, you know, a lot of this is subjective. Are there examples of male directors exploiting their actors in like lascivious sex scenes? Of course, of course. And we can still have those conversations about like, was this necessary? I mean, we were talking about Chris Nolan and Oppenheimer. We were like critiquing those sex scenes, which were very odd, you know? Yeah. Um, do I think they shouldn't have been in the film? No, because it's not my fucking film. Like Chris Nolan wanted those in. I was like, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we talked about them, right? That That's what art and culture should be, you know? Yeah. And it should be that you, we should be talking about whether or not it works in the context of the story, not whether it's necessary for the story. Exactly. Or like, how could you have told this, this particular story in a way that removes all of these things? Because that's what people should do. And then like, leave the sexual pairings for fan fiction. That was my favorite bad take. Ugh. That, like, oh if God. you tell the story and then you leave the 
fan fiction space to be the place to come up with their own ideas about what kind of uh, sexual activities and pairings. And then you can get as explicit as you want to. And like, I don't know, man, like people who make movies and television tend to be pretty big fans of the medium uh, and often yeah. are making references direct or indirect to other art. Uh, maybe they are doing exactly what you said. They're just not doing it in a fucking AO3 forum. Yeah. And like, listen, well, we support fan fiction. Chloe Zhao, big shout out. <laughs> like, you oh, know, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people love fan fiction. Uh, if you write fan fiction, uh, that's cool and everything. But to say that sex only belongs in fan fiction is like, God, I. I kind of wanted to talk about like why this is happening because we've talked a lot about, you know, the trend on TikTok of um, the youth accusing absolutely everyone of being groomers and stuff like that, where there's just in general, like a, a lot of paranoia around sex. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the word prudishness because I feel like that has its own judgments. But like, why is this happening? Like, is it that people feel more isolated and depressed and like, cause it's not just in America. This is like a trend worldwide that younger people are having sex less. Yeah. And I guess yeah. it, it, some of it might be isolation of the pandemic, but it was seemed to be starting before that. Um, I hate to be the person that just says, well, it's probably the internet, but I, think the internet no, probably honestly, has a lot to do with it. I, I, and to me that goes along with the isolation. I think it's a lot of people feel very, um, you know, destabilized and, and, um, like threatened constantly. Like, you know, you can lose your job really easily. You suddenly can't pay rent. There's no like moment to just sort of relax anymore, <laughs> which is when we would like usually go out and meet people. And Oh, by the way, you don't even need to go out anymore. Cause you can just be online. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's just depression. I think it's, you know, I blame everything on capitalism, but I'll blame this on capitalism as well. You know, people have less to spend on fun things. So like, you know, uh, more poverty, uh, less free time, more and more isolation. I do think these things are related as to why people are suddenly so. And again, I know I'm speaking in generalities and not all young people feel this way, but it is definitely a, a, like a TikTok trend of people yeah. saying oh, that I, they are I like icked out by sex scenes. And I'm like, you are not all asexual. You're not, you know, no. so like what's happening here? I, I also think that there's a and somebody made this point online and I thought they took it in a way that really bugged me. But I, it also was a smart one that. With more and more generations of people growing up fully online, but also with a certain level of expectation of like digital surveillance, that actual depictions of intimacy or like having to engage with those things can make them uncomfortable because there's no space to feel like what it's so hard to find things you can actually push back on to keep a sense of, of state, like a safe space for yourself. Um, I think also you're not when you're... influenced by it. And so yeah. I think like there's an out, like the rejection itself is the response to algorithmic surveillance. 
And it's um, how you get noticed, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. On the, in the algorithm is like the more hyperbolic you can be. I've noticed this in a lot of film critics as well. Like some of their reviews are so hyperbolic and I'm like, oh, it's because you're trying to cut through the noise. So if I say I'm an influencer on TikTok, the more hyperbolic I can be, the more, um, you know, inciting I can be with my language, the more shares it'll get, the more likes it'll get. And that really, I think that might also be why it's this sort of like stark interpretation of art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So bothers me so much because, and here's another, here's a, a way to segue into another thing I know we wanted to talk about. There seems to be such a lack of larger cultural context of things that were happening even a few years ago, let alone decades ago. So there's people make making comments about how there doesn't need to be sex in movies or having a, a, a level of prudishness. Like if you've never encountered a movie that was made before the Hayes Code, you might... <laughs> fully believe that there was a time when this was just not happening and like your mind like Barbara Stanwyck will melt your fucking brain cells yeah (laughs) I think you I mean this is a really good point a lot of these critiques might become be coming from like 15 16 year olds who don't have a deep knowledge of film and they will one day and they'll look back on these takes and be like oh wow I was such a dumb kid you know um because I have that we both grew up online and like, I'm sure you would never, ever, ever, ever want to see any of your old takes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely not. So like, I do want to give people the grace and the space to like learn and grow. And like, yeah, like maybe once you go to university or college or whatever, and you become a film uh, major and you learn about this stuff, you'll be like, Oh, now I understand the full context. And like, yeah, I, I don't know. I w- I did want to talk about uh, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, so there's this big piece. It was in Variety, right? I don't have. Yes, I think it was. It was Variety or Hollywood Reporter. About how um, surprise, surprise, there are critics on Rotten Tomatoes who take money from the studios. They take bribes. Let's just call it what it is from the studios to either give good reviews or change sometimes their reviews of films to boost the Rotten Tomato score. And, you know, this will not be surprising to anybody who is familiar with Rotten Tomatoes and has seen like what Marvel movies get. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to single out Marvel, but I, it is like the most egregious example, I think. Uh, and have seen those films and you're like, really? That got a 75% interesting because I yeah. would have scored that lower. Um, but it kind of feeds into this whole online culture we're talking about where there are a lot of film aggregator accounts on Twitter, um, you know, film updates, discussing film being the two, I think, shining examples. Although I have to do sh- shout them out. They've been very, very pro-worker and pro-union. Um, oh, yeah. So that's good. But... They tend to link to stories and not credit like the original sources and stuff like that, or not even link to it, but like, you know, paraphrase in their tweets for retweets and stuff like that, not crediting the original reporting, which is very, very bad. And a lot of those accounts, when they're like trying to generate buzz for a film or talk about a film, will post the Rotten Tomatoes score. And I see in the comment sections people actually saying stuff like, 
oh, it got a bad RT score. I'm not going to go see it. Or right. the well, opposite. Need- oh, it got a good score. It must be good. And there's way too much invested in this like arbitrary number, which come to find is the product of bribes. Well, in, it is, it's the product of more than just bribes. It's the, ex, the specific expansion to include people who are self-published or uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe more influencers. Like there was a change to the way that the, the site accepted reviews that would count towards a Rotten Tomatoes score. And then add in that you just take the number of positive reviews versus the negative reviews, which are decided by we don't know, like some internal metric that they're like, oh yeah, well this, this is good. This is bad. Um, and and then, then sometimes just even divide the two and you say, okay, well that's the score and it's not scientific. It doesn't have any space for nuance, which is something that we've talked a lot about recently about movies that we would call the two and a half star movies, like things that don't work, but have interesting elements and maybe took some big swings. Well, a lot of critics came out when this piece came out and said, this has happened to me where I I thought I was giving an overall positive review to a film and Rotten Tomatoes marks my review as rotten. Right. And it's what you're talking about. It's that two and a half star area where it's like, I've marked films I've genuinely enjoyed two and a half stars on Letterboxd, you know, because there were interesting elements and I would recommend them to like the right person, but Rotten Tomatoes would mark that as rotten, which is, you know, this goes back to Siskel and Ebert with thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, it's like, it's not always that simple, you know? Yeah. But even when they were doing a thumbs up, thumbs down, they also wrote reviews that that gave a star rating that they used as their jumping off point for saying yes, thumbs up or thumbs down. And they were pretty clear when they said, you know, there were many times where they said, yeah, I mean, I guess this is a thumbs down, but if you're interested in X, Y, Z, or you're curious about this thing, you should, you know, you'll probably enjoy it a lot more, Right. you know, like, or this is something I didn't like, but I think some people will really like. Right. Um, Yeah. So Obviously, I'm I'm sure, like, if you listen to the show, although I don't know, a lot of people I follow who are like, you know, film reviewers themselves, but also film buffs do refer to the Rotten Tomatoes score a lot. I think just because it's an easy sort of shorthand in our culture to say, like, a film's doing well. Like I just said, Poor Things has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. That does mean something, you know? Um But at the same time, it's like we do have to keep in mind, you know, without being gatekeepers, because I do think it's important. Some of my favorite reviewers started out as like letterbox people, you know, Mm -hmm. or Twitter uh, reviewers. And now they work for publications and that's how people start, you know. So I don't think it's as convenient as saying, oh, only, quote unquote, official reviewers, whatever that means, should be able to contribute to Rotten Tomatoes. But it is also very telling that like, any Joe Smith can sign up and alter that score, (laughs) you know, like, because it's important to keep that in mind for a lot of reasons, but like, say, if there's a film created by women and I am a raging misogynist and I want to tank that score on Rotten Tomatoes, I can just sign up and drag that viewer score down, you know? Right. So there's still plenty of, it's a larger issue with the internet and the fact that we have an obsession with doing our own research and then using the worst possible sources as information (laughs) sources. Right. So like 
having no literacy about the idea that like there's a difference between somebody who's a freelancer who has written for the Times and you know Vogue and GQ and like some influencer who's being repped by a PR company right. in right. order to boost or who's being contra- like who's contracted with a PR company to boost the score of a movie that this PR company reps. Yeah, I would say guys just in general and again we should teach media literacy in schools. But a great question I always ask is just who's paying you? You know, like whether it's a TikTok influencer at a factory claiming the conditions are great for the workers <laughs> or, you know, a reviewer on Rotten Tomatoes and is like unclear where they're getting paid from. Uh, yeah. You know. Who's also who's nevertheless suddenly like, you know, Into the Multiverse of Madness is the best Marvel <laughs> movie. Citizen Kane. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, What okay. the fuck is this? Yeah. Um, do we want to talk about Fallon? I think we should talk about it for a little bit. This was the least surprising thing to okay. come out to Allison and myself. This idea, uh, there was an expose posted or by Rolling Stone that interviewed dozens of people, current and former employees of The Tonight Show, saying that uh, the environment was extremely toxic and negative and that Jimmy was an... Er- like erratic and uh, capricious boss who kind of sucked and seemed to be on some occasions intoxicated or hungover. Uh, and I actually had a conversation with another friend of mine about this where she was disappointed that the story ended up being, didn't go harder and have more about Jimmy specifically. Yeah. That there was an element of like, oh, well, this is probably how every, this is where every setting that has that level of pressure ends up feeling at some point. And maybe the showrunners were the people that were actually making things untenable. But I also recognize that depending on what they got from sources, what kind of proof these people were able to offer, I guess probably not very much. Um, there was a reason why they only said that they thought they smelled alcohol in his breath or that he yeah. seemed to be hungover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was very telling that, drunk. that they couldn't get a single employee to say anything nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> damning. That's very damning. You know, usually they'll find like one quote from someone who's like, Jimmy's great. And they couldn't do it. So I'm like, well, fuck, that's bad. Um, and yeah, a lot of people, I think, uh, ungenerously were like, yeah, it's a late night environment. It's always stressful. It's always toxic. And it's like, no, you know, I, I do think we could go way deeper with not only this profile, but say like Saturday Night Live. Um, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of toxicity. There's a lot of abuse um, that you, I mean, you could write novels about, you know, and people should yeah. research it and report on it. Um, but to claim that it's impossible to treat your workers with respect because you have a stressful job, then you shouldn't have that job. Right. And to, it, to have another example of HR, isn't your friend, they are here to protect the company's investments, which means if you're complaining about a showrunner, that showrunner is of course going to end up hearing about it and retaliate against you because there are virtually no consequences mm. for that kind of bad behavior. And it's been very rare. Um, we've seen it a little bit with some union organizing where there's been clear retaliation and workers then years later end up 
vindicated and being told they should get their jobs back. But um, when it comes to things like this, especially when it is destructive to your mental health, Mm -hmm. it creates a reinforcing system where the people who are getting pushed out are struggling. And even if that hasn't been made clear in a public way for by like screw ups, it can still be shaped by bad actors and HR that like the the fit wasn't good because if they could have handled it, everything would have been fine. Right. And I I think it's important to because whenever a profile like this comes out, there's a bunch of blue check marks who are like, wham, wham, my job is stressful. And it's like, we're not talking about someone getting chewed out because they missed a deadline. We're talking about like, yeah, the showrunner commenting on like people's weight (laughs) and stuff where it's like completely unprofessional, has nothing to do with the job and like is just part of this toxic environment. Um, Yeah, I, as you said, it was the least surprising thing ever. There's been, everybody has, you know, without us getting sued. Let me just say like, everybody has a Fallon story. Everybody has experienced the instability we're talking about, you know? Um, So it was no great surprise, but it does feel like one of those culture shift moments where, you know, not that, and we'll talk about this in a second with the Danny Masterson of it all. Hearing a lot of these stories echoed back to me that I heard when I was like, I don't know, 21, 22. And hearing it now as a 40 year old, I'm like, I am hearing the same words, but I am feeling very different about them now. And that's because of the culture shift. Yeah. Which is, um, it's like, it's again, this is kind of back to what we were talking about having the context of these stories, having been around for a while, knowing the history of it, um, and being able to say, oh, well, it took a while, but we needed to get through a bunch of cultural bullshit in order to get to a place where it was possible to actually see a difference. Yeah. And it is amazing, though, because like whenever something like this, a profile like this comes out, people take to Twitter and they start posting about like their own run ins with Jimmy and like mm-hmm. um, or, or their own experience in like late night culture in general about how it's really toxic and there's a lot of abuse going on. Um, and like I I had heard some of these like years and years and years ago. And you hear it when you're 21, 22 <laughs> and you hear it so much from everyone that it's like, yeah, that's just, it's a Monday, you know? And going back to this current piece in Variety, people being like, well, is it like that in all late night shows? And it's like, first of all, no. A lot of people were going online to say like, uh, like to talk about great examples of supportive bosses. So like Conan, Seth Meyers, you know, not to say that any environment is universally great, you know, but there were examples of, bosses who were kind to their workers right in a late night environment but to the people who were like oh so it's just everywhere yes yeah yeah and it's and guess what and guess what it's probably your favorite guy too there's gonna be a story that comes out that he did something fucked up and we should be adult enough to say hey that was fucked up and you shouldn't treat people that way you being my fave aside you know Mm -hmm. being like actually thinking someone has the persona of a good guy or like a charming person. Like there's a reason people get famous. It's because they have charisma. 
their whole job is to convince you that they're relatable and friendly and won't do bad things to you. So of course people will defend their faves because they're, they're fans. Um, and it's the nostalgia it, thing, it is very, you know, and there's always going to there, no matter how good someone is or how good an environment is or how much somebody loves working at a particular job, there are going to be times when it's not fun. And there's going to be times when people are stressed out. But that is like and, separate from what that piece was trying to do, which is. Rosie, you don't like bad bosses. <laughs> She's like, I got a thing to say about, uh, I almost uh, said a specific name that I should not use. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, there is an easy way to dismiss the story by saying this is a bunch of jaded workers who are pissed off at their bosses who, you know, um, have petty grievances. We're not talking about like, you don't want to go to work on Monday. We're talking about the culture being toxic. So you know, that is, that's a separate thing. That's not, jobs are tough. Nobody likes to go to their job, you know? Um, yeah. But you shouldn't lose 20 pounds. Right. Stress right. And your hair starts your falling out and you're constantly afraid your boss is going to like pull you into a room with him and do God knows what. That yeah. is what we're talking about. That is toxic. Um, other stuff probably can be hashed out between employees or HR, you know, like I, I don't like the way Bill talks to me, you know? Um, but when we're talking about pervasive institutional abuse, and it's not just Jimmy, it's other late night hosts, it's other late night shows. This is a ongoing problem. It's been a problem for decades. There's going to be other profiles about shows and hosts you love, and you're going to be like, no, but nobody's like trying to take your childhood memories away from you. You know, like if Jimmy Fallon was your favorite part of SNL, God knows why, but just <laughs> let's say you really like the fact that he ruined every sketch he was ever in and you were his number one fan on SNL. You love Jimmy. You can still have those memories of Jimmy making you laugh, but that doesn't mean we turn like a blind eye to him being a fucking asshole boss. Yeah. Who was the one late night host who seemed willing to just not pay his employees after like two weeks. Yeah, which was like so funny because people were like, no, when that happened and anybody who actually knew Jimmy's history was like, yeah, of course. Of course he was the one who was like, I'm not paying you guys anymore. Um, yeah. So let's pivot into the Danny Masterson of it all. Uh, a bad man got come up in. He sure did. Uh, I was pretty surprised. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen ultimately with the sentencing that that number may come way down. But the fact that he got 30 years, I was like, God damn it. Not that he didn't deserve it, but that a judge would and a lady judge, of course, but like a, a judge would be that harsh with, in sentencing over, you know, rape allegations. But also this is a very wealthy very white uh, actor who maybe not anymore, but you know, in his heyday was very, very popular. The fact that he got 30 years certainly deserved it, but also I was just surprised that it happened. Yeah. I mean, anytime there's actually a sense of, oh, there's justice here. People who were victimized by this person 
might actually feel like justice was done. Like, huh. Okay. And I, I'm That's- assuming all, uh, maybe I shouldn't assume this. I'm assuming all of his victims were white. I don't know. I actually know. don't I know, really- but like that might have something to do with it as well. Um, but the big story that everybody's talking about, in addition to the sentencing, is the fact that Ashton Kutcher and, um, oh my God, uh, Mila, Mila Kunis, Kunis. yeah, uh, who are a married couple and have children together, wrote him these like glowing letters to the judge where they're like talking about his character and how wonderful he is. Um, and, that I mean, that's a public record when you write those letters and it's they are submitted into a trial to like, you know, as part of the whole shebang that is now part of the public record. So those letters went public and it caused quite a little stir <laughs> on the Internet <laughs> to the point where they had to record this ridiculous video where they are so obviously reading a PR script going back to the whole PR of it all. And by the way, it's not fucking working the the old PR script is not sticking with the people online where they were like, we believe victims. We support victims. And it's like, well, then why the fuck? We didn't think these were going to be, po- we never thought these would be made public. I bet you didn't. So- I bet you didn't. I bet that is the whole sticking point where it's like, we thought this would be private and we thought we could shit on victims privately. We did not know it would go public. Guess what it fucking did? And now ridiculously, they're like, we support victims or survivors and it's like no you fucking don't you supported your rapist friend because you were on a tv show with him and whatever's going on whether it's a sense of loyalty because you've been friends with him for years or he has dirt on you and you don't want it to go public you decided to defend him and guess what you can't take it back no and people have seen through this especially since if you add in and i know that um friend of the show and wonderful human, Melissa Jira Grant has definitely written in the past about Ashton Cooker's, Kutcher's ridiculous um, anti-trafficking work right. from several years ago. Um, the man has some really dumb ideas, like very bad <laughs> ideas about how to help people. And AI and, and tech and shit. He's like one of those tech bros too. Yeah. And it's very silly. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be, pretty skeptical of anything that they either of them says, but uh, especially him where I'm like, Oh, you, you support victims when they're um, imaginary white people being trafficked, but you have a real like people who say I was victimized by your buddy. And you're like, Oh, I'm sure that couldn't possibly be true. Or I know it's true, but uh, I was there. I knew stuff. I didn't, you know, like allegedly, 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 we don't know anything, but He's defending him for a reason. And it's either that they've been friends for years and he has very fond memories of him, I'm sure, and he wants to defend him. Or going back to what we were talking about with the culture being so different, all of these old clips are now being circulated online of Ashton and Danny talking about Mila, who, by the way, was 14 when she got cast on that 70s show. She lied about her age, but they hired her and then they knew how old she was and they kept her on. And she had to have her first kiss on camera and the two of these idiots making gross fucking jokes, sexualizing her when she was 14 years old. And she's laughing, but it's like she really didn't have a chance to like have a different response, not excusing her behavior now. But at the time, she was a child. 
Well, what, I mean, it, it just shows so clearly that she was trained as part of her professional development to go along with situations that were probably like now we would likely say, grooming? yeah, that's not something a teenager should be <laughs> and doing. A, and, and, like, and an example of real grooming, you know, where it's like putting a child in a situation where they're going to be sexualized, introducing them to these things and like, you know, grooming them. Um, and now of course, She's married to Ash and they have children together. But like, I even remember when they got together as a couple, which I don't even remember what year that happened in, but they had been together on the show and they didn't get together and then they were dating other people. And then they got together. That was like presented as like the love story of the century where, yeah, it's like, oh, they were a couple on television and now they're getting together in real life. Amazing. child but like like, I, like most people bought into it where it was like oh that's really sweet you know and now looking through a 2023 lens it's like oh god and, but that's a big cultural shift like i was texting you the other day that 70s show is one of the last like monoculture tv shows we had where like i can still name every single character on that show you know, by their name, because I watched so many fucking episodes of it. It's like, yeah, Kelso and Jackie, they're like the it couple, you know, we love them. So when they got together for real at the time, people thought it was adorable. And it's so interesting now to see young people discover this story. And they're like, I'm sorry, she was 14. And they're 100% right to feel like grossed out by that. But to have, again, the same words that I heard as a teenager repeated back to me now as an adult, like a 40-year-old adult, I'm like, oh, shit. And that is 100% because the culture has changed so much. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, oh, that was something that we definitely didn't no, think was totally weird. All. And it's, it was also because, like, we were kids who were probably being sexualized as well, you know? And it's like, I mean, 100% we were, you know? Like, so it didn't, it wasn't unusual to us, you know? Right. Um, and of course, that's how this all works. Like we are trained at, you know, groomed, but like, as far as part of society, like as we're getting taught what are what the basic cultural norms are, we learn what we're supposed to go along with and what's sort of tacitly acceptable and recognize that and then taught that if we have a problem with that, it's because there's something wrong with right. us, not with what is you know, what people are doing. Okay. So I think in this episode, we shit on the kids a little bit, but we also praise the kids because the, the kids yes. are right about re-examining stuff that we thought was normal in the nineties now to be like, that was fucked up. Yeah, that was fucked up. And that was really unnecessary. Right. Um, and maybe, maybe chill out about sex and movies. though. <laughs> yeah. This, this doesn't all have to be a, there's not a continuum. This isn't a, oh, this stuff was fucked up and now uh, we must destroy it all because it's bad. Right. And and we these just, things should be handled. You know, like there should be an intimacy coordinator. If, if a, you know, regardless of the actor's genders, they should be empowered in these scenes. There are ways to do it, I think, responsibly without just being like, yeah, man, we're just free on this set. We do whatever the fuck we want in our sex scenes. It's like, no, because that's when people start to cross boundaries and stuff like that. I think there's a way to responsibly handle that stuff and still allow artistic freedom. Yes, absolutely. And I think that there are, these are worthwhile conversations to have, but it's not going to be as simple as this is bad now. Exactly. And we need to have people who are willing and interested in exploring those questions 
in a way that is beyond just, uh, we don't like this. And so we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to, we need to not be uh, just removing tons of content simply because we've decided that it is no longer acceptable. Exactly. Back to like, let us not memory hole stuff that, um, is disturbing now because the cultural context. Well, like, think I about had that it. happen when I was watching a movie not that long ago. This is one of my favorite movies from when I was a teenager. Um, and Jesus Christ, like the doom generation is a very disturbing film. Oh. Uh, and it's, ex- Oh my God, it's upsetting, but I fucking love it. And I'm so interested that that like kids now have a chance to experience a movie like that without like in a new context. Well, let me like ask you, you let me ask about. you this in terms of memory hole stuff. And then I'll let you go. Cause Meredith, yeah, Meredith yeah. has to see bottoms. You guys, it's very important. She leaves on time. Um, yes, I have to see bottoms today. It's going to be, great. I a hundred percent agree with you about the memory hole stuff and why it's bad. Um, how do you feel about taking the Cosby show and that 70s show off the air because of Bill Cosby and Danny Masterson? I feel like it's not. And sorry to put you on the spot, especially because I don't fully have an answer either. I have, I have kind of, I have my, I have some issues with it actually, because I think it's incredibly important to still be able to see what culture was like, even when bad people were making That's how it. I, I feel. Mean, and also, I don't know where you draw the line for that to end. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, I think Bill Cosby is the most like egregious example where it's like this man was like a serial predator for decades, you know? Yeah. But it also, it ends up being to decide to erase the hard, like years of hard work by people who weren't a rapist. Like that's where I start to see problems to it. Um, Because there are people who's like, you don't necessarily have to see everything, but I think have like taking it away doesn't solve the problem. Like it, it should be more about deciding that you don't want to engage with it because you think that you don't want to engage with, work by somebody that you find reprehensible. What if you know? we'd still show the episodes, but at the end of every episode, we show their mugshot? <laughs> See, and I like would a description of I would get what they were imprisoned for, where it's like, this man raped <laughs> however many women. Yeah, but you, you still get to watch like a show that a lot of people worked very hard on for years and years and years. Because that's another thing where I'm like, so we're punishing everybody by deep because residuals are tied into like how many times the show is shown and stuff like that, where it's like you're punishing everybody. And right. I I that is collective punishment. I don't know if that's right. Um, but at the same time, do I want to watch Bill Cosby on TV? No, me personally, I probably will never watch that show again. And that was one of my favorite shows. I just like my skin crawls every time I see him. And same with that 70s show. Can't watch that anymore because fucking hide, you know? Um, but I, uh, but removing it feels like not only are we memory holding it, but we can't learn from it anymore. Because it's like, if right. we don't acknowledge it happened, then like, for example, if we compl- if we had the ability to completely erase the fact that that 70s show existed, right? 
this current generation would not be learning from like how bad the culture was in the 90s and how Danny Masterson got away with it for so many years and like the Scientology aspect of it and all of that shit. Like we just fully would not be talking about it. And I don't think that's a solution either. Yeah. Well, I also think that it opens up a space that would, that then puts a lot of other things in danger, not because um, people connected to it were prop like did something bad, but because thanks to changes in the culture, people are less comfortable with the subject matter. I'm thinking specifically about things like on the right. family or mod right. or blazing saddles, like things that are specifically trying to make like to target the shitty behavior that is being depicted. Yeah, I think it's but still exists. And I think that like people have, we've seen people become too willing right. to take the face value of something and, and not the, the shallowest and not reading be, and then decide that it is not valuable And not anymore. engage it with it on an intellectual level where it's like, this thing can exist and we can critique it. There's this impulse to erase it, which is bad. Right. It's that is just bad because it's like, not only are you not learning to, articulate why you are feeling bad about this and why it's bad for the culture. But then anybody who comes after you can't look at that thing and critique it themselves, you know, and, and have thoughts about it. And our culture can't grow, you know, like I understand the impulse of this is really bad. We have to get rid of it, but censoring and erasing stuff from history, I think is the, not a good way to handle it. I agree. And I think that that's, uh, take it off the, you know, take that 70s show off the the Hulu carousel, you know, you can make it harder to find, or you again, don't have to promote it like as a special or thing. Again, make like, it Fanny Masterson's monk show. <laughs> yes, all of it. But I think there's just, there, there's still, I haven't been able to find a way to think myself beyond certain pieces of art by that involve bad people are a necessary consequence of having culture available that allows people to get a full picture of the past and of their current. Yeah. Reality. And I, again, maybe it's not a black and white thing. Maybe there's a compromise in here, but like, I definitely don't think like Danny Masterson should get residuals <laughs> for that 70s show, but like maybe, I don't know, his residuals can go to his victims or like maybe there's like something that can be done where we don't erase these things from the culture, but the worst people don't benefit from them. Maybe. Yeah. And I think that there's, if we, it would be nice if there were a way to make that happen. And I'm not saying it's easy um, or it'll be neat, but... I think the answer is somewhere in between, as it so often is, everyone. Yeah, and thank you for letting me kind of uh, noodle out my thoughts there, because I know it, it's, it gets muddy really, really fast. And I, um, there are a lot of things where I really want to just make sure that the bad people suffer. And then, and like places where I just am like, okay, well, deplatform and punch the Nazis. But um, I get really protective when I'm like, oh, you think this is a bad piece of art now because it has bad people in it? I don't 
think that's a or that good it makes idea. you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but speaking yeah, like, of I, making the bad people uh, feel bad about being bad, we're going to end this episode as we're going to end every episode during the strike um, with the very wise words of uh, Ron Perlman, who, uh, um, you know, had some choice words for the studios during this difficult time. But I can't even say follow Meredith on social anymore because she's off the dang grid. Uh, mm, I am on uh, Blue Sky and uh, and on Instagram and Letterboxd. So right. I'm on those as well. You can follow me on some socials, but not <laughs> not all, all of them. them. Not the worst one right now. But I'm on all the socials as well at Allison Kilkenny. Follow me there. Follow Light Trees and News at Light Trees and Pod. And on that note, everybody, have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Here's Ron. The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making 27 fucking million dollars a year for creating nothing. Be careful, motherfucker. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of shit that stirs shit up. Peace out. <laughs>